We're going to be back into Psalm 119 tonight, back into Psalm 119. And when I started this series, I, I, I began by just walking verse by verse by verse through it, and I didn't even read it beforehand. We just read a verse, and then, and then I, I, I explained it. And I, I kind of wanted to do that more uh, in our study of Psalm 119, and I really got away from it, and I'm not saying I, I won't get away from it again, but it kind of jumped out at me that this week's section of Psalm 119 uh, can be dealt with again in a similar manner. So I would invite you to open up to Psalm 119. Uh, we're not going to read it all at the outset. We will read it uh, as we work our way through it, but we are in the Tet section, T-E-T-H. Uh, that is the ninth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and uh, that, uh, that is where we're at tonight. So that is verses 65 through 72. Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72. Martin Luther uh, once wrote, I never knew the meaning of God's Word until I came into affliction. I have always found it to be one of the best school masters. I never knew the meaning of God's Word until I came into affliction I have always found it, affliction, to be one of the best school masters. And as we see in this section of Psalm 119, the writer of Psalm 119 will very much agree with that sentiment. The Tet section begins with these words in verses 65, "'You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word.'" At the beginning of this section, the psalmist is looking back over his life, and he is testifying for all to his experience with the Lord. And his testimony is that the Lord has dealt well with him. The Lord has dealt kindly with him. The Lord has been nothing but good towards him. Before we really get in, let's just stop for a moment. Which of us tonight cannot say the same thing. Which of us cannot look back over our lives at this moment and see how the Lord has provided for us uh, in times of need and see how the Lord has been patient with us in times of failing and see how the Lord has opened doors and closed doors to get us to the place where we are today and, and see how the Lord has used even difficult and trying situations for our good. Right? Which of us tonight cannot say the same thing as the psalmist, that the Lord has dealt well with His servant? Of course, what's interesting is that the psalmist says this at the beginning of a section in which he will go on to speak of being afflicted. And so, the implication then, when taken as a whole, is that even in affliction, the Lord has dealt well with the psalmist. Even in affliction, God has been good to His servants. And the psalmist will, in the next few verses, tell us how, how he has come to know that and how that has come to be. What is most noteworthy here, I think, is the simple fact that the psalmist makes it clear none of us should be surprised to see that the Lord has dealt well with us. For as the psalmist says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Now, in God's word, uh, He does not promise us a life 
free from trial and difficulty, but, but He does promise us uh, that His goodness and His mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And so, and so none of us should be surprised, as the psalmist shouldn't be surprised, to, to look back over our lives and to see that this has been exactly the case. The Lord has said, uh, uh, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of our life. We look back over our lives, we see goodness and mercy, it has followed us all the days of, your, of our lives. The psalmist says, you've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, and then he adds, according to your word, another translation puts it this way, and this is the gist of it, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, just as you've promised. Let me ask, how much anxiety do you think we'd be spared if we just trusted in the promises of God more readily? The psalmist says, you have dealt well with your servant, but it's not like some chance. It's not something that was unexpected. It's something that you promised. You have dealt well with your servant according to your word. You have treated me in the manner you've told me that you've treated me. And friends, the fact is, and we all know this, don't we? We all know this. The psalmist's testimony here will be the testimony of all the redeemed. When it's all said and done, each of us will look back over our lives. We'll see all the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, the obedience and the sin. And we will say with the psalmist, we will. We know it. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your promise. That will be the testimony of the redeemed. And sometimes in difficult and hard situations, we sort of just have to fast forward to the end and say, this will be my testimony. This is what I will say. I am sure of that. I'm not sure how it's all going to play out, but this will be my testimony. Why? Because the Lord has promised that this will be my testimony. The Lord has promised that He will deal well with me in Christ. Verse 66, the psalmist says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. It's striking to me How often the writer of Psalm 119 asks God for knowledge and understanding. We see it also in verse uh, 64, which is the last verse of the previous section. We'll see it again in verse 68, right, in just a couple more verses. No doubt there are other instances throughout the psalm as well, where the psalmist asks for understanding, the psalmist asks for knowledge, the psalmist asks for wisdom, But just just think of who is making this request. It's the one who wrote Psalm 119. It's the one who wrote uh, the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the one who wrote a passage of Scripture which thoroughly praises God for His Word. I mean, there's probably no one in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't count, No one in the history of the world who understood the breadth and the depth and the perfection and the sufficiency and the authority and the relevance of Scripture better than this guy who wrote Psalm 119, and yet he continually asked God for a greater understanding of His Word. He continually asked God for increased knowledge according to His Word. And let that be a lesson To each of us, none of us ever arrives at the point when it comes to understanding God's Word. When it comes to the study of God's Word, none of us can ever say, I've made it. I've got that mastered. 
Now I can move on to something else. None, none of us ever gets to that point. No, when it, when it comes to God's Word, there is always more for our eyes to see, always more for our ears to hear, always more for our minds to understand, always more for our hearts to believe. Love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. He sees this as a privilege. I can relate to that, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what Scripture contains, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It contains riches that can never be exhausted, riches that no one can ever mine out or mine to their fullest extent. Scripture, like our Lord Himself, just keeps giving and giving and giving. And so the psalmist, who has an incredibly high view and understanding of God's Word, continues to pray, Lord, teach me good judgment and knowledge. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. No doubt we see here something of why affliction comes our way. And we see something of what God is doing in our lives through affliction. He is bringing us back to Himself and to His word. He is chastening us, as it were, in order that, in order that our lives might be brought back in line with His word. Certainly we are reminded here of what Hebrews 12 tells us, endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone un undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. And that's the psalmist's experience. Affliction made him holy. Affliction caused him to reevaluate his life in the light of God's Word. Affliction, in the end, was a blessing and a benefit, and he's going to acknowledge that in verse 71. But friends, we're, we're reminded here that, that, that comfort and prosperity and ease really are the soil in which pride and all of its fruits go, grow, right? Prosperity and comfort and ease are the soil in which unbelief grows. But from affliction, from affliction comes humility and faith. We might not like that. We might not wish the way it was. Why can't humility and faith grow in the soil of prosperity? That would be so much nicer. But that's not how it works. I love what Spurgeon says. He nails it. Why is it that a little ease works in us so much disease? Can we never rest without rusting? Never be filled without waxing fat? Never rise as to one world without going down to another. What weak creatures we are to be unable to bear a little pleasure. 
What base hearts are those which turn the abundance of God's goodness into an occasion for sin? It was an affliction that the psalmist was made holy. And no doubt it has been an affliction that many of us have been made holy as well. No doubt it is an affliction that many of us have have advanced in sanctification. Verse 68, the psalmist says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The word good is a common word in this section of Psalm 119. And the reason why is because the Hebrew word for good is tov. And that Hebrew word begins with the Hebrew letter tet, which is the letter that every verse in this section of Psalm 119 begins with. And it's the letter every verse must begin with in order to be consistent with the pattern of the psalm. And so in this section of the psalm, we see the psalmist making good use of that Hebrew word tov, or good, beginning five of the eight verses with it. Now in verse 65, he declares um, that... uh, um, Or in verse 66, he says that God is the source of good judgment. In verse 65, he says that God's good in his dealings. In verse 71, he's going to say that God's afflictions are good. Verse 72, he says God's word is good. But here in verse 68, he just just kind of declares that God is good. God is good. And again, it's it's in the middle uh, of a section in which he speaks about being afflicted that he declares that God is good. And the point, again, is that even in affliction, God is good. And even in affliction, God's goodness is, believe it or not, on display. He says God is good. We need to take verses 69 and 70 together. This is what the psalmist says, The insolent smear me with lies. With my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. In these two verses, the psalmist contrasts himself with the insolent, with the proud, with the ungodly. And in verse 69, he contrasts specifically the preoccupation of their heart the preoccupation of of the insolent's heart with the preoccupation of his own heart. And the psalmist says, they are preoccupied, they are focused on smearing me with lies. Right? Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. The insolent are preoccupied with taking the psalmist down. They're focused on ruining the psalmist's reputation and character. But look what the psalmist is focused on. Is he focused on getting them back? Is he even focused on doing damage repair to his image? No, he says, they focus on smearing me with lies. I focus on keeping your precepts. With my whole heart, I keep your precepts, he says. So the wicked, preoccupied with their smear campaign against the psalmist, the psalmist is preoccupied with serving the Lord, with keeping the Lord's word. There's a good lesson for us here. I have a, uh, a close friend who's just having an awful, awful time in ministry, and uh, he's really taken a stand for the gospel and for the truth of God's word, and uh, the elders at his church have really bought into what's called critical race theory, 
um, which essentially says, you know, you're all guilty and you're all the problem and the only way to fix it is for you all to stop being racist. Um, that's critical race theory. It's really what the Black Lives Matter movement pushes. It doesn't take into account, you know, our need for the new heart at the cross. And anyway, all of that, it's, it's a heresy. And uh, we can talk more about that later. Anyway, he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of stood up and he said, listen, uh, you know, salvation is not found in the prayers of the black community, which is what an elder in his church was blatantly saying to the congregation. He said, salvation is found in Christ alone. We need to preach the true gospel here, understanding there is a problem, but we need to look to the gospel and to Christ to fix it. And he just, just had a complete run-in with his elders, and he needs to leave. And, and so, um, uh, my friend is on the verge uh, of, of getting uh, another call, potentially, and this would be a blessing to him, and it's, it's something he and I have been praying for. And he says to me, you know, I don't know when I should tell my elders, because if I tell them too soon, I'm afraid that they will begin a smear campaign against me. They'll just, they'll just have it out for me. And I said, you know what? If they do, they'll have to answer to God for that. All you can do is be faithful to the Lord with all your heart. And he said to me later, he's like, that was so helpful. I, I just felt the burden lifted. But that's where the psalmist is at in verse 67. He's being smeared with lies, and yet rather than focusing on the insolent who are making his life difficult, he focuses on the Lord and on his word. In verse 70, then, he contrasts the, the disposition of their hearts, the disposition of, of the insolent with his own disposition. And he says, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. That word unfeeling like fat or that phrase, it, it implies a, an unresponsiveness to God's word. Some people we know, they hear God's word and it moves in their heart. I, I've, I've brought them up for a few weeks for various reasons, but the prime example I think is King David in uh, 2 Samuel 12. Uh, when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba, and he responds to that word of God spoken to him by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. He was moved by the word of God. His heart was responsive to the word of God. There are others who don't respond in such a way. Right? There are others whose, whose hearts remain cold and indifferent. Once again, example from our own study of Mark in the morning, that delegation from the Sanhedrin they question Jesus about his authority. Jesus tells them a parable about the wicked tenants in the vineyard, uh, which is ultimately a parable of judgment against them. And we're told at the end that they perceived Jesus spoke against them, but they didn't repent. They were hardened against Jesus, and they just wanted all the more to, to do away with Jesus. And so, and so they, they remain unmoved, and that's the way it is with the insolent who smear the psalmist with lies. Their hearts are unfeeling. They hear God's word, but in their heart, it's like the seed that lands along the path, which just sits there until the birds come and pick it up. It has no effect on them whatsoever. Contrast that with the psalmist. He hears God's word, and he delights in it. He hears God's word and he takes pleasure in it. He hears God's word and he hears nothing less than the voice of his shepherd speaking to him. Go on to verse 71. The psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Here the psalmist says outright, 
what he implied earlier. That it's, that it's good for him to be afflicted. And if we follow his logic, then most certainly we agree. It was good for him to be afflicted, right? I mean, if affliction caused him to keep God's word after he had gone astray, which he told us it did, then most certainly it was good that he was afflicted because anything that moves us to keep God's word, anything that causes us to become more biblical in our life is good. And since affliction served this purpose in his life, well, then it is good that he was afflicted. And he just comes right out and says it. It is good that I was afflicted. J.C. Ryle, it's kind of a lengthy quote, but it's a good one. He says, affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which could be learned no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin in the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Let us beware of murmuring in the time of trouble. Let us settle it firmly in our minds that there is a meaning, a needs be, and a message from God in every sorrow that falls upon us. There are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of affliction. There is no commentary that opens up the Bible so much as sickness and sorrow. The resurrection morning will prove that many of the losses of God's people were in reality eternal gains. Thousands. At the last day, we'll testify with David, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. The last verse is this, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. There's a story told about an ancient Hebrew manuscript that was um, kind of on display uh, at the Vatican. And this Hebrew manuscript weighed roughly 320 pounds. It was huge. And many, many years ago, around the year 1500, so many, many years ago, a group of Russian Jews uh, saw this Hebrew manuscript, and they offered the Vatican the weight of the book in gold. So they said, for this 320-pound book, we will give you 320 pounds of gold. Today, if my Google search was accurate, (laughs) that would be about $9.1 million. And yet the Vatican said, no, no, we won't sell the book for that price. Now, truth be told, There might be nobody in the history of the world who has needed 320 pounds of gold less than the Vatican. Okay, it's worth about 15 billion today. The Vatican does not need anybody's gold. So that might have had something to do with it. But that said, it is a good illustration, isn't it, of the point made here in Psalm 119. God's word is better than thousands of gold in silver pieces. That is, there is nothing on this earth so precious, nothing 
so valuable, nothing so inestimable, nothing so priceless, nothing so treasured as the Word of God. And isn't this so incredibly obvious today? I mean, look at the world. People are lost in sin and living in darkness, aren't they? They do not know which way is up. Abortion is called reproductive justice. They don't have a clue. They are so lost. They're eating one another alive on our streets. Hatred, violence, falsehood, right? Supreme Court Justice dies who stood for a lot of things that, man, really contrary to this, people are bawling their eyes out because she stood for something that is precious to them. And yet in the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this confusion, God's Word continues to give us clarity, doesn't it? It enables us to rest even now in the fact that God is sovereign and that our lives are in His hands. More than that, God's Word shows us how to walk in this world. It tells us that which is good and right and true in a world that has no idea what is good and right and true and which suffers terribly from not knowing what is good and right and true. I look at how the Word of God has blessed my marriage, how it has blessed my relationships, how it has enabled me to live within my means financially, how it has kept me from getting caught up in the madness which so characterizes our nation. I look at how it proclaims to me the forgiveness for my sins and peace with God through the death of Christ. I look at how it gives me hope and confidence in the face of death so that I'm not paralyzed by fear as so many around us are these days. I see these things. I think you see these things as well. And we can't help but realize, can we, what the psalmist says is true, that God's Word is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Friends, I hope you realize that as well. I hope you realize that if you have God's Word, If God, by grace, has taken your word and planted it deep in your heart by His Holy Spirit as you've looked unto Christ for salvation, that you are among the most blessed of men and blessed of women in the entire world. Christian, do you value God's word? Do you understand what God has given you in opening your heart and mind to understand His Word? Do you understand what God has given you in enabling you to to understand the mystery of the gospel? Do you realize what you have? Can you bless God even today for, for the afflictions which have brought you back to His Word, and which have impressed upon your heart the truth of His Word. Do you realize what you have? Do you realize how much this is worth? We are so rich in this world, which is so spiritually poor and blind and doesn't have a clue. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
May God help each of us realize how true this is. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word. And Lord, we thank you for opening our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. We thank you for leading us to our Savior through your word and for setting before us all that is good and right and true in your word and for enabling us to live in the light of your word in a world which is lost in darkness. Father, enable us to realize what we have in your word and help us to be people who do everything in our power to spread your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. What's our closing song, Carlene? Blue? Hymnal for worship? Blue, 556. 556. Now thank we all our God. We'll sing all three verses to close. (laughs) 